Our Father, we come to you tonight, and we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus, and we come because of what you have provided for us in him. We stand on his righteousness that he earned with his life. We claim the atonement that he made with his death. We live in the hope of the resurrection that he has accomplished in preceding us from death to life everlasting. And we desire tonight to look into your word, to be guided by your word and spirit into the truth concerning Christ. So we plead with you now to draw near to us by your spirit. Do open your word up to us and show us the riches, the treasury that is in the Lord Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, after the great fire in 1666 destroyed London, Christopher Wren, who was England's most famous architect, was commissioned to rebuild St. Paul's Cathedral. And it took nine years to finish the plans for that rebuilding, and then another 33 years for the construction actually to be completed. The story's told that one day after the construction had begun, Christopher Wren walked to the construction site and he saw three men, three bricklayers who were working there. And so he asked them, what are you doing? And the first bricklayer said, I'm a bricklayer. I'm laying bricks in order to feed my family. And then the second man said, I'm a wall builder and I'm building a wall. The third man looked at him, stood up, looked him in the eye. And he said, I'm a cathedral builder and I'm building a cathedral to the Almighty. All three men were doing the same work. It was honest work. They all three gave honest answers to what they were doing. They were accurate in describing their work. But only the third man had a sense about the importance of what he was doing. He recognized that what he was engaged in was something far more significant than just the immediate activity. He realized that he was part of something far more significant than himself. His time his energy, his talents, his life was being given to a project that was noble, something that would be worth more than his lifespan. He had a mission. He was fulfilling a calling to help build St. Paul's Cathedral. Well, Christians are a called people. We've been called by God. Primarily, most significantly, we've been called by God, by the power of his spirit, the truth of his word, to know and follow Jesus Christ. God has called us to turn away from sin, to renounce all of our own efforts, all of our own righteousness, and to trust Him as Lord. So every Christian has a calling. We've all been called. And among other things, that means that our lives have purpose and meaning because they are lives designed by God and given to us from God. What I want to do this evening in the few minutes we have together is to consider what it means to live a called life, to think about your life, to see yourself as a Christian, a person whom God has summoned and to whom God has given a specific mission, a purpose to fulfill, a participation in the construction project known as God's kingdom. And the main point that I want to press home this evening is this. The Christian life is a called life. To think rightly about the nature of that called life is to discover 
purpose for your existence. If you're a believer, you have been called. In fact, the reason you're a believer is because you have been called. So what does the Bible say about being called? Well, that concept is very prevalent in the Scripture. In fact, the word call in its various forms is found over 700 times in the Old and New Testaments. There are two primary ways that the word is used. The first way is to designate the issuing of a summons, often by name. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and God comes looking for them in the garden. We read that the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? He summoned Adam to come and appear before him. The second way that this word is used is in the sense of assigning a mission. Very often in the scripture, the idea of calling is associated with naming, to give a name to someone or something. Again, as we see in the Garden of Eden, when the Lord named all the elements of creation that he spoke into existence to fulfill his own purposes. For example, in verse 5 of Genesis 1, it says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, these two usages of the word or the idea of calling are not mutually exclusive. At times, they, both ideas are embedded in this word being called. This is particularly true when God is the subject of the call, when he is the one who does the calling. We see this in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1, when the servant of the Lord describes being called by God. He says, listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. So the servant of the Lord confesses that he was summoned by God. He was directed by God and given a commission by God to do God's will. Isaiah chapter 43 makes this even clearer with the way that God summoned and commissioned Israel to be his own special nation. Nation. Listen to verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you're precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west and I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God called the nation of Israel into existence to have a special covenanted relationship with himself. He formed them. He made them. Why? For his own glory. To bring glory to himself in the creation that he made. We see these same emphases when you go to the New Testament and consider the word call and how it is used there. 
when Jesus called his original 12 disciples, he summoned them to himself and then he commissioned them to follow after him in his saving mission for the world. And after his death, his resurrection and ascension into heaven, the apostles speak of fellow believers as being called in Jesus Christ. That is, God summons us, he names us, and he commissions us for his own purposes through the person and work of his son. So we read things like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, where Paul is addressing the Corinthians. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then a little later in verse 9 of that same chapter, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship, the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Embedded in this idea of being called is the powerful, effective work of God's spirit that causes an individual to recognize that he or she is being summoned by God and must comply with that summons. It's to be drawn by God. It's to be persuaded to turn from sin and to trust the Lord Jesus. It is in the language of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, to be called out of darkness and into the marvelous light of God. Perhaps nowhere is this idea of calling more eloquently or succinctly set forth than in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, where Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. To be effectually called in this sense, which Paul uses it here, is to be sovereignly drawn into a life of repentance and faith that unites a person to Christ. It is to be eternally saved. But notice how Paul refers to such people as being called according to God's purpose. What is that purpose? Well, it is to manifest his glory in and through the sinners that he saves. To conform those that he calls into the image of his firstborn son, the Lord Jesus. Ephesians 1 verses 11 and 12 puts it like this. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Everything that exists, exists for the glory of God. And we who bear the image of God, exist for the glory of God. And we who know the Son of God, have been called to that knowledge for the glory of God. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins, what is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So God calls people away from their life of sin and rebellion to a life of bringing glory to Him by enjoying Him forever. So, brothers and sisters, the life that we now live 
by faith in Jesus Christ is a called life. As a Christian, you have been summoned by God. You have been brought into his kingdom and you have been commissioned by God to live for his honor and his glory while you live. And that's true of every Christian. And it's true of us because of God's grace. It is only grace that makes this true of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29 makes this crystal clear. Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, we who belong to the Lord need regularly to stop and remember where we were, what we were, before the Lord summoned us to himself. Paul disabuses us of any notions that we might entertain to think that we have reason to look down upon others or to live with any kind of pride because of what God has done in our lives. Consider your calling, Paul says. He wants us to stop and think about it. What does it mean to be a Christian? How did you get this way? Well, you were summoned. You were called with a call that you had to acquiesce to. And God made you a part of what he is doing in the world. By the world's standards, most of the people that God saves are not very impressive. I mean, come on, just look around, all right? I mean, or just look up here. You know, what do we have to commend ourselves by the world's standards? There's not many wise, not many powerful not many who are noble-born. Most of God's people come from the common ranks and could be considered, as Paul does, foolish, weak, low, despised. God chose us. He called us solely by His grace and mercy for the express purpose that no human being might glory in His presence. Well, this is true of every Christian, we're called, and we're called by grace. And every Christian is given a called life regardless of status or occupation. One of the wonderful things that God did in the 16th century was to lead Martin Luther to rediscover this idea of calling and vocation. Luther protested the medieval idea that the only truly called people in God's kingdoms are priests or bishops or nuns or those who are ordained by the church for special church work. He recognized that when God summons and commissions people and he calls people, he normally leaves those people in their ordinary roles of life. Roles like being a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter or a farmer or a fisherman. In 1520, Luther wrote a very important tract addressed to the Christian nobility in Germany. And in that tract, he makes this statement. There is no true basic difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, 
between religious and secular, except for the sake of office and work, but not for the sake of status. So every Christian, he says, is called. And though we might have different areas in which we fulfill our calling, our status before God is the same. We're saints called. He goes on, they are all of the spiritual estate, all truly priests, bishops, and popes, but they do not all have the same work to do. A cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. Further, everyone must benefit and serve every other by means of his own work or office so that in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, just as all the members of the body serve one another. Where did Luther get this idea? This notion that you can live out a called life, you can fulfill your responsibility before God as a Christian without having to become a pastor or a missionary. He got it from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24, where Paul writes, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him and to which God has called him. You've been assigned and called to the life you have, brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean it won't change, over the course of your life, indeed, it inevitably will. But at every stage and in every location of your life, you are a called person. You have a summons from God and a commission from God to live for His glory in the world. Paul goes on. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but keeping the commandments of God. Living under the authority of Christ. Doing what God has called you to do in your specific realm with all that he's invested in you in that specific station of life. Paul says, Going on in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 7. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Man, Paul would be canceled today. But you see, there's something going on in his mind that is so significant that even being a slave to another person doesn't even begin to compare. A slave can fulfill a called life, according to the Apostle Paul. He says, don't be concerned about it. But then he does add, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So this is no endorsement of slavery by the Apostle Paul. But it does teach us that we need to think rightly about this whole issue of what it means to be called in comparison to our location in life to our opportunities and privileges or lack of opportunities and privileges. Those do not define us, nor do they hinder us from living out a called life. Verse 22. 
For he who, was called, he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. And likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brother, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. You know, Paul's not saying you can't change jobs, you can't move locations. He's just saying, man, those things are so far down the line in how you ought to identify yourself and think about yourself that if you'll see yourself as a called person, then you've got the big issues of life already figured out. You will be living a life having been summoned and commissioned by God. Once you grasp this fact that as a Christian we've been called by God, then the particular role that He assigns to us in His world is just a matter of detail. Where you live, what kind of job you take, what time you spend pursuing various activities. Any of those things that are lawful and legitimate, you can do to the glory of God living out a life of being called by God. Christ has summoned us. He's commissioned us to live for His glory, to love God supremely, and to love our neighbors sincerely. Well, as you do this, and you fulfill your various roles with a sense of being called by God, then you will be serving God and serving your neighbor. And you can do this in any number of ways, every lawful way, by raising crops, by teaching students, by changing flat tires or dirty diapers. You can live a called life honorably before God in all of those activities. Luther referred to doing good works in this way as wearing the masks of God. He writes this. God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. Neither does he want your plowing and planting alone to give you grain and fruit, but you are to plow and then ask his blessing and pray. Now let God take over. Now grant grain and fruit, dear Lord. Our plowing and planting will not do it. It is thy gift. He goes on. What else is all our work to God? whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, but just such a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else. These are the masks of God behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. We have the saying, God gives every good thing, but not just by waving a hand. God gives all good gifts, but you must lend a hand and take the bull by the horns. He continues, labor and let him give the fruits. Govern and let him give his blessing. Fight and let him give the victory. Preach and let him win hearts. Take a husband or a wife and let him produce the children. Eat and drink and let him nourish and strengthen you. And so on. In all our doings, he is to work through us and he alone shall have the glory from it. Recognizing that this is the way God intends for his world to work. This is the way that God intends for things to get accomplished in his world. It's for his people to recognize that we have been summoned by him, commissioned by him to participate in what he is doing in the world, to fulfill our calling wherever it is and whatever it entails. 
John Calvin put it this way, <clears throat> that 16th century reformer. The Lord bids each one of us in all of life's actions to look to his calling. For he knows with what great restlessness human nature flames. With what fickleness it is born hither and thither. How its ambition longs to embrace various things at once. Therefore, lest through our stupidity and rashness everything be turned topsy-turvy, he has appointed duties for every man in his particular way of life. And that no one may thoughtlessly transgress his limits, he has named those various kinds of livings callings. Therefore, each individual has his own kind of living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post, so that he may not heedlessly wander about through life. Recognize where God has placed you, how he has gifted you, the opportunities he's entrusted to you, the responsibilities that are yours, and then give yourself to them. And as you're clear about what God is having you do, you won't be tempted to run after every little thing that comes down the pike. You'll learn to say no. Which Charles Spurgeon said to his students is more important than learning Latin. To recognize, this is my calling. And I can't fulfill my calling if I try to take on these other things or neglect these responsibilities. Calvin goes on to say that the way to live a well-ordered life is to recognize that you're called by God to the station that he has assigned to you. Once a person understands and accepts this, then he will not, Calvin says, by his own rashness attempt more than his calling will permit because he will know it is not lawful to exceed his bounds. And as you embrace your duties and responsibilities with this way of thinking, Calvin goes on to say, no task will be so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. We won't be caught up with all of this dissatisfaction because of social media and what other people suggest that would be a better way to live. We'll be settled in our relationship with God that he summons us to Christ. Having Christ, we have everything. He's positioned us here, not there. And so how foolish it would be for me to look over there and think, oh, well, because I'm not that, I can't enjoy and do well here. Understanding that our lives, every moment of our lives in Christ is a called life. To live this way will set you free from the manipulations and tyrannies of people You'll learn to live for the honor of the one to whom you belong. The one who alone has summoned you and commissioned you. Embracing this spiritual reality that you're a called person will result in blessing in three big spheres of your life. The first is your personal life. It will settle your sense of who you are and whose you are. Your identity. You won't have to Go around trying to sort out who you are and trying to find yourself because you'll just revel in the wonder that God has found you and he's commissioned you to live the life that he has ordained for you. As such, you'll be able to embrace more readily this wonderful truth that we looked at in Romans 8, 28. You'll be able to confess the answer to that first question in the Heidelberg Catechism when we're asked, what is your only hope? With your only comfort in life and in death. 
that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Wouldn't you like to remember that every day? In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life, makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This kind of confidence will enable you to persevere in the face of all kinds of opposition and difficulty. As we see from the Apostle Paul when he wrote from prison, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in God, through God, in Christ Jesus. Well, not only will we be helped to think better about our personal lives, embracing your sense of calling from God will also result in blessing for your church life. Brothers and sisters, this is significant, especially in this day. Paul reasons exactly along these lines in Ephesians chapter 4 when he begins to draw out practical implications of the doctrine that he's been teaching for those first three chapters. In Ephesians 4 verse 1 he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It was in Paul's mind. This idea of being called, being summoned, being commissioned. And now he's using it as a standard and saying, you need to live worthy of that. And he addresses what that looks like. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now just think for a moment, what would your church be like if every Christian in the church lived this way? If all of us thought about our lives this way, that we're called and we want to live in a life, a life worthy of that calling. Why? It would be a reflection of heaven itself. The third sphere where living a called life will result in blessing is in your society. This point is subtly and yet I would believe, I argue, undeniably made by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 10. There, he instructs us to make our calling and election sure. Listen to what he writes. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or excellence, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What's a, what kind of society would it be where everybody was doing what Peter admonishes us to do here? I mean, what kind of neighborhood would it be? What kind of family would it be? What would happen if Christians took their calling and election this seriously and sought to make it sure 
by doing what Peter admonishes us to do? What would it be like? It would be like the way it has been every time the gospel has gone in power anywhere. It would be like what happened in the Middle Eastern lands in the first two and three centuries of the church. It would be like what happened in North Africa and throughout Europe. It would be like what happened in North America where the gospel came in power and gospel people lived out called lives and the result was there was a better society. The history of Western civilization is the story of God saving people by the power of His gospel then causing them to take seriously this calling to live a virtuous, honorable life for His glory. Could it be? Could it be that one reason we are witnessing the crumbling of our nation's moral and spiritual foundations is due to this very failure? That so many of us who name the name of Christ have no sense of honoring Christ by fulfilling our callings in our various spheres of responsibility? Brothers and sisters, we have been called by God to a life of faith. He issued you a summons and he has given you a commission. And no matter what your station in life, no matter what your circumstances, no matter what your gifts or your liabilities, no matter how large your opportunity or how small, God has called you to fulfill that calling that goes with the role that he has given to you to love him and love your neighbor. If you're a husband, then love your wife. For the Lord's sake. If you're a wife, then respect and be submissive to your husband for the Lord's sake. If you're a child, honor your father and your mother for the Lord's sake. If you're a parent, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord for the Lord's sake. If you're an employee, then work not simply for your boss, but as to the Lord. And if you're an employer, then you take care of your employees for the Lord's sake. Whatever your station in life, if you're retired, then you redeem what time with what energy you have in those years. For the Lord's sake. You're a neighbor. Be a neighbor to your neighbors. For the Lord's sake. It is our calling. As our Western culture grows increasingly pagan and antagonistic to the ways of Christ. We who know the Lord and have been called into his service. Must embrace our calling. And do so with joy and resolve. As called men and women. We must be prepared to stand firm in the evil day. And to stand regardless of cost or consequences. By doing so, we will serve both God and our neighbors. And we will do it in ways that we might not live ever to fully understand. In 480 BC, King Xerxes of the Persians led an army of many nations in an assault upon Greece. He led the largest, most fierce army force that had ever been assembled. Some estimated that it had as many as two or three million soldiers. And even the most careful estimates say it was at least a quarter of a million warriors. Leonidas, the king of Sparta, rallied 700 Greek soldiers to take their stand against this onslaught at a small pass that was only about 20 yards wide called Thermopylae. The heart of the Greek forces were Leonidas' own 300 Spartan warriors. These were men who had been trained never to desert their posts. Spartan mothers would tell their sons, come back either with your shield or on your shield. 
Before attacking the Greeks, Xerxes sent a messenger to King Leonidas, imploring him to turn over his weapons and surrender. And King Leonidas' response is that phrase that has come down to us now, molen labe, come and take them. And they took their stand. For two days, the Greeks held their ground, turning back even the elite 10,000-strong Persian force called the Immortals. Called that because as soon as one dropped, another was prepared already to stand up and take his place so that they never had less than 10,000 on the ready. But late on the second day, one of the residents there, a Greek, betrayed the Greek forces by telling the Persian forces about a secret route around Thermopylae. So early the next morning, Xerxes sent troops through that secret passage. He outflanked the Greeks. Leonidas realized that he was not going to be able to win this battle, so he called his troops to retreat, all except the 300 Spartans that were with him. And they took their stand there. They found the highest ground that they could defend, and they fought valiantly. One historian says that as their swords were dropped and taken from them, that they fought with their hands, and they fought with their teeth, and they were slaughtered. Before the last Spartan died that day, it's reported that they sent back to Sparta this message. Tell the Spartans that we have behaved as they would wish us to and are buried here. Though King Leonidas and his forces were vastly outnumbered, though they were slaughtered in their effort to defend their ground, their courage, their fulfillment of their calling as Spartans, rallied Greek troops for the next couple of years, such that ultimately Xerxes and his Persian forces were turned back. Later that year, at the Battle of Salamis and at Plataea, the Greeks won the day, and Xerxes had to return in humiliation to his homeland. Within 50 years, Athens became the leading city in the world with influence far beyond what anyone could have imagined during that battle. You know, brothers and sisters, I think, I'm convinced that we are in the early stages of the greatest threat that we have seen come against the church of Jesus Christ in our lifetimes. I'm not saying there haven't been other threats in other lifetimes. But in my lifetime, I can say that without any fear of being contradicted. I think what's going on is that God is putting us in a position where we're going to have to stand our ground. This is going to have to be our Thermopylae. We're going to have to be determined to live and if need be, die for the sake of Christ in order to not surrender what the Lord has entrusted to us. He has called us to stand fast, to stand firm, to suffer. He's called us to not give up the cause of our God and his truth. And though the intensity of the opposition we face may reach levels that you and I have never faced before, we must remember that it's not unprecedented. And indeed, it's not even all that unusual when you look back over the two millennia of our brothers and sisters who have walked with Christ in this world. It's not unusual even for many of our brothers and sisters in other places of the world who have it much worse than we do. But this is our master's way. This is the calling he's given to us. He made us alive today, not another day. He's put us here, not somewhere else. And our master accomplished our salvation 
by way of suffering and being slaughtered. So we should not think it strange that he calls us to live in a day when we too may follow in his footsteps of suffering and if need be, of being slaughtered. Christ laid down his life for us willingly. He voluntarily submitted himself to death for our sakes in order that he might bring us to God. And no one gets right with God apart from turning from sin and trusting in our Savior who suffered and died in our behalf. He's the one who's called us. He's the one we follow. And by his grace, let us resolve to fulfill that calling. Come what may, regardless of cost or consequences. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the heritage we have as we stand upon the shoulders of men and women who have gone before us who were faithful to death. And we ask that you would steal us in this day that we would not be knocked off course or give in to self-pity because things are more difficult than they have been. But I ask that you would drive deep into our thinking this sense of being called by Jesus Christ to live here now with all the opportunities, with all of the gifts, with all of the limitations that are in our lives so that you might receive the honor and the glory that you do. Hear our prayer. Come to us, O God. Make a name for yourself among us in this generation. Do it in a way that all the glory will be yours and everyone will know that there is a God in heaven that he rules and he reigns, that Jesus Christ is the only Savior this world has. For we pray in his name. Amen.